three. It piqued Oleron a little that his friend, Miss Bengough, should dismiss with a glance the place he himself had found so singularly winning. Indeed, she scarcely lifted her eyes to it. But then she had always been more or less like that, a little indifferent to the graces of life, careless of appearances, and perhaps a shade more herself when she ate biscuits from a paper bag than when she dined with greater observance of the conveniences. She was an unattached journalist of thirty-four, large, showy, fair as butter, pink as a dog-rose, reminding one of a florist's picked specimen bloom, and given to sudden and ample movements and moist and explosive utterances. She pulled a better living out of the pool, as she expressed it, than Oleron did, and by cunningly disguised puffs of drapers and haberdashers, she pulled also the greater part of her very varied wardrobe. She left small whirlwinds of air behind her when she moved, in which her veils and scarves fluttered and spun. Oleron heard the flurry of her skirts on his staircase, and her single loud knock at his door when he had been a month in his new abode. Her garments brought in the outer air, and she flung a bundle of ladies' journals down on a chair. Don't knock off for me, she said, across a mouthful of large-headed hatpins as she removed her hat and veil. I didn't know whether you were straight yet, so I brought some sandwiches for lunch. You've got coffee, I suppose. No, don't get up, I'll find the kitchen. Oh, that's all right, I'll clear these things away. To tell the truth, I'm rather glad to be interrupted, said Oleron. He gathered his work together and put it away. She was already in the kitchen. He heard the running of water into the kettle. He joined her, and ten minutes later followed her back to the sitting-room with the coffee and sandwiches on a tray. They sat down with the tray on a small table between them. "'Well, what do you think of the new place?' Oleron asked as she poured out coffee. Mm, anybody'd think you were going to get married, Paul,' he laughed. "'Oh, no, but it's an improvement on some of them, isn't it?' "'Is it? I suppose it is. I don't know. I like the last place, in spite of the black ceiling and no water tap.' How's Romilly? Oleron thumbed his chin. Mm, I'm rather ashamed to tell you. The fact is, I've not got on very well with it. But it'll be all right on the night, as you used to say. Stuck? Rather stuck. Got any of it you care to read to me? Oleron had long been in the habit of reading portions of his work to Miss Bengough occasionally. Her comments were always quick and practical, sometimes directly useful, sometimes indirectly suggestive. She, in return for his confidence, always kept all mentions of her own work sedulously from him. His, she said, was real work. Hers merely filled space, not always even grammatically. I'm afraid there isn't, Oleron replied, still meditatively dry-shaving his chin. Then he added with a little burst of candour, The fact is, Elsie, I've not written, not actually written, very much more of it, any more of it, in fact. But of course, that doesn't mean I haven't progressed. I progressed, in one sense, rather alarmingly. I'm now thinking of reconstructing the whole thing. Miss Bengough gave a gasp. Reconstructing? Making Romilly herself a different type of woman. Somehow I began to feel that I'm not getting the most out of her. As she stands, I've certainly lost interest in her to some extent. But, but, Miss Bengough protested, you had her so real, so living, Paul. Oleron smiled faintly. He had been quite prepared for Miss Bengough's disapproval. He wasn't surprised that she liked Romilly, as she at present existed. She would. Whether she realised it or not, there was much of herself in this fictitious creation. Naturally, Romilly would seem real, living to her. But are you really serious, Paul? Miss Bengough asked presently, with a round-eyed stare. 
quite serious. You're really going to scrap those 15 chapters? I didn't exactly say that. That fine, rich love scene. I should only do it reluctantly, and for the sake of something I thought better. And that beautiful, beautiful description of Romilly on the shore. It wouldn't necessarily be wasted, he said a little uneasily. But Miss Bengoff made a large and windy gesture, and then let him have it. Really, you're too trying, she broke out. I do wish sometimes you'd remember you're human and live in the world. You know, I'd be the last to wish you to lower your standard one inch, but it wouldn't be lowering it to bring it within human comprehension. Oh, you're sometimes altogether too godlike. Why, it would be a wicked, criminal waste of your powers to destroy those fifteen chapters. Look at it reasonably now. You've been working for nearly twenty years. You've now got what you've been working for almost within your grasp. Your affairs are at a most critical stage. Oh, don't tell me. I know you're about at the end of your money. And here you are, deliberately proposing to withdraw a thing that will probably make your name, and to substitute it for something that ten to one nobody on earth will ever want to read, and small blame to them. Really, you try my patience. Oleron had shaken his head slowly as she had talked. It was an old story between them. The noisy, able, practical journalist was an admirable friend, up to a certain point. Beyond that, well, each of us knows that point beyond which we stand alone. Elsie Bengough sometimes said that had she had one-tenth part of Oleron's genius, there were few things she couldn't have done, thus making that genius a quantitatively divisible thing, a sort of ingredient to be attracted to or subtracted from in the admixture of his work. That it was a qualitative thing, essential, indivisible, informing, past her comprehension. Their spirits parted company at that point. Oleron knew it. She didn't appear to know it. Yes, 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 he said a little wearily, by and by. Practically, you're quite right, entirely right, and I haven't a word to say. If I could only turn Romilly over to you, you'd make an enormous success of her, but that can't be, and I, for my part, am seriously doubting whether she's worth my while. You know what that means. What does it mean? she demanded bluntly. Well, he said, smiling wanly, what does it mean when you're convinced the thing isn't worth doing? You simply don't do it. Miss Bengough's eyes swept the ceiling for assistance against this impossible man. What utter rubbish, she broke out at last. Why, when I saw you last, you were simply oozing Romilly. You were turning her off at the rate of four chapters a week. If you hadn't moved, you'd have her three parts done by now. What on earth possessed you to move right in the middle of your most important work? Oleron tried to put her off with a recital of inconveniences, but she wouldn't have it. Perhaps in her heart she partly suspected the reason. He was simply mortally weary of the narrow circumstances of his life. He had had twenty years of it. Twenty years of garrets and roof chambers and dingy flats and shabby lodgings, and he was tired of dinginess and shabbiness. The reward was as far off as ever. Or, if it was not... He no longer cared as once he would have cared to put out his hand and take it. It's all very well to tell a man who's at the point of exhaustion that only another effort is required of him. If he cannot make it, he is as far off as ever. Anyway, old one summed up, I'm happier here than I have been for a long time. That's some sort of a justification. And doing no work, said Miss Bengough pointedly. At that, a trifling petulance that had been gathering in old one came to her head. 
And why should I do nothing but work, he demanded. How much happier am I for it? I don't say I don't love my work when it's done, but I hate doing it. Sometimes it's an intolerable burden that I simply long to be rid of. Once in many weeks it has a moment, one moment, of glow and thrill for me. I remember the days when it was all glow and thrill, and now I'm forty-four and it's becoming drudgery. Nobody wants it. I'm ceasing to want it myself. And if any ordinary sensible man were to ask me whether I didn't think I was a fool to go on, I think I should agree that I was. Miss Bengough's comely pink face was serious. But you knew all that, Paul, many, many years ago, and you still chose it, she said in a low voice. Well, and how should I have known, he demanded. I didn't know. I was told so. My heart, if you like, told me so, and I thought I knew. Youth always thinks it knows. Then one day it discovers that it's nearly fifty. Forty-four, Paul. Forty-four, then. And it finds that the glamour isn't in front but behind. Yes, I knew and chose, if that's knowing and choosing. But it's a costly choice we call them to make when we're young. Miss Bengough's eyes were on the floor. Without moving them, she said, You're not regretting it, Paul. Am I not? He took her up. Upon my word, I've lately thought I am. What do I get in return for it all? You know what you get, she replied. He might have known from her tone what else he could have had for the holding up of a finger, herself. She knew, but couldn't tell him, that he could have done no better thing for himself. Had he, any time these ten years, asked her to marry him, she would have replied quietly, Very well, when? He had never thought of it. Yours is the real work, she continued quietly. Without you, we jackals couldn't exist. You and a few like you hold everything upon your shoulders. For a minute there was a silence. Then it occurred to Oleron that this was common vulgar grumbling. It wasn't his habit. Suddenly he rose and began to stack cups and plates on the tray. Sorry you catch me like this, Elsie, he said with a little laugh. No, I'll take them out. Then we'll go for a walk if you like. He carried out the tray and began to show Miss Bengough round his flat. She made few comments. In the kitchen she asked what an old faded square of reddish frieze was that Mrs. Barrett used as a cushion for her wooden chair. That! I should be glad if you could tell me what it is, Oleron replied, as he unfolded the bag and related the story of its finding in the window seat. I think I know what it is, said Miss Bengough. It's been used to wrap up a harp before putting it in its case. By Jove, that's probably just what it is, said Oleron. I could make neither head nor tail of it. They finished the tour of the flat and returned to the sitting room. And uh, who lives in the rest of the house, Miss Bengough asked. I dare say a tramp sleeps in the cellar occasionally. Nobody else. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you what I think about it, if you like. I should like. You'll never work here. Oh, said Oleron quickly, why not? You'll never finish Romilly here. Why, I don't know, but you won't. I know it. You'll have to leave before you get on with that book. He mused for a moment and then said, Isn't that a little prejudiced, Elsie? Perfectly ridiculous. As an argument, it hasn't a leg to stand on. But there it is, she replied, her mouth once more full of large-headed hat-pins. Oleron was reaching down his hat and coat. He laughed. I can only hope you're entirely wrong, he said, for I shall be in a serious mess if Romilly isn't out in the autumn. 